Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your cybersecurity threat intel briefing for the week of October 23rd, 2022 through October 29th, 2022. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to leave a like, comment, and subscribe. Let me know if you enjoy the show, if you want to see other kind of content on the channel, not just about this show, but anything really. And any ways that we can improve the show, make it better for you, make improve videos, make them better for you. Overall, we're doing this all for you. So we want to make sure that we are taking that feedback and we're making it better all the time. If you're listening on podcasting platform, because we are available on all popular uh, podcasting platforms, so Spotify, iTunes, whatever else there is, there's a whole bunch of them. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Same thing. If you enjoy the show, if you want to hear about different things, if you want to see different things, because remember we're on YouTube and on the popular uh, podcasting platforms. But uh, also make sure to check out the description because there will be a link to the show notes where you can actually get the articles that we talk about. You can also see some other articles that maybe we didn't cover, or if you just want to dive deeper into the articles that we did cover, all that stuff is on there. It'll be on my website. If you're just looking to go to my website at johngood.com and you'll be able to find all of that stuff there as well. So without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump into the articles for this week. So first article is NSA Cyber Chief says Ukraine war is compelling more intelligence sharing with industry. Rapidly and proactively sharing intelligence on cyber threats with industry and critical infrastructure providers can really make a a big and decisive difference. That was a quote from Rob Joyce, director of the NSA Cybersecurity Directorate. And he said that last week. So uh, over time, I've changed my view about what it is to protect sources and methods. Joyce said, noting that his 30-plus years at NSA, it's in our DNA to protect sources and methods to ensure the ability to know secrets into the future. But what we know is, uh, is often not sensitive. It is how we know it that's sensitive. Uh, Joyce said, we can make available the insights about what we know without putting at risk how we know it. That's really an inflection point that lets us get to more prolific, more extensive, and more closely sharing for operational uh, outcomes. Joyce added that it doesn't do anybody any good if we know a thing and we don't do something about it. Doing is really the focus in the cybersecurity area, and you've got secrets and understandings and how you don't operate uh, and you don't operationalize those. They don't count. So huge point there, right? The idea of really being able to decipher the information that they have and see what is really classified or what's sensitive, right? And what level of sensitivity that is, and then being able to share some of that information. You know, if you've seen in the news, you know, there's a whole bunch of talk about kind of these organizations, these agencies, and not wanting to divulge their sources or methods, right? Like that's a big deal. But if you have information that you know, it's not sensitive information like that, or maybe it's secret instead of, you know, top secret or something and being able to share that with your allies or other agencies, you know, throughout the world. 
that can certainly make things more uh, more secure, you know, if you do it in the right right sense. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of debate, you know, with the information that they can collect, what kind of information they can find out, right? How they can find it out, you know, that that's a whole nother debate. But the idea of not just um, kind of, um, you know, being basically a pack rat of information, right? Where you just, you, uh, or you hoard that information and you just keep it to yourself and don't share it with other, other organizations, right? So that sounds like an interesting, um, interesting idea. I don't think that's, you know, something that a lot of us are probably going to see. We'll kind of see, you know, it says with industry, we'll see what kind of context that means. That means through like advisories or something like that. You know, I think that anytime they start putting out information into the blanket public, right? Like just out there, you know, that can cause concern versus uh, back channels or maybe more, uh, more limited communications with organizations or industry organizations. So we will see on that one. Next article, good news. Uh, your sniff, no longer a banking Trojan. Bad news. It's now a backdoor. Uh, your sniff. The malware, also known as Gazi, that attempts to steal online banking credentials from victims, Windows PCs, is evolving to support extortionware. As one of the oldest banking trojans dating back to the mid-2000s, the software, NAS, uh, the software Nasty has a number of variants and been, uh, has been given a few monikers, including YourSniff, Gazi, and ISB, ISFB. It's crossed paths with other malware families, had its source code leaked twice since 2016, and according to Mandiant, is now less uh, is now a less uh, less a single malware family than a set of related siblings. Whoever's still behind your sniff is following the path worn by devel- developers of other malware families such as Emotet, Trickbot, and Cackbot, uh, which. Shed, uh, shed their banking info stealing past to become backdoors or infected machines that can then be uh, used by miscreants to deliver ransomware and stealing uh, data stealing payloads. Yeah, we see this all the time with malware, right? We see kind of this evolution and things change. You know, these malware groups, they decide to go a certain way, uh, maybe, you know, doing it this specific way as like a regular malware uh, banking Trojan, maybe they get detected very easily, but if they kind of adjust things and they can be used in other ways, that's useful. A lot of the old malware, if they are able to infect systems or infect organizations and, you know, they have that kind of foothold on organizations, you know, that can be useful to other variants that are maybe more effective. Maybe they are not easily, uh, as easily to detect, right? So like a backdoor well, we have this foothold, so we're going to sell this for, you know, I don't know, $5,000 or something on the dark web, right? So we definitely see this kind of evolution in a lot of different malwares. We see all kinds of evolutions, right? The longstanding malwares, they, see, they, they become more of a business, you know, and they're around for a while. They, they pick up good practices or best practices. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we, we see this a lot. It's not really that big of a surprise that we see kind of a, a shift or a pivot with some of the malware. Uh, C-Tickets discloses 2.5-year-long credit card theft breach. Ticketing service provider C-Tickets uh, C has disclosed a data breach informing customers that cyber criminals 
might have accessed their payment card details via a skimmer on its website. Skimmers are snippets of JavaScript code infected on order checkout pages to steal inputted uh, payment card details from customers. In this case, people who bought a ticket to go to a live entertainment event. Yeah, so if you're familiar with credit card skimmers, you're probably most familiar with the actual physical ones. So the ones that are on the credit card machines, right? And it's a physical device, maybe like a uh, an additional kind of like case looking thing that goes on top. It has a skimmer in there, stick in your card. They skim the details, run it through the actual machine, right? Like that's that's what most people are familiar with when it comes to credit card skimmers. But you can also have them on websites, right? Like it's it's a different idea, right? Like it's a different way of infecting some organization or some merchant. But, you know, the idea is still the same. There's just some code that's kind of embedded. Now, as far as a consumer, right, as a user, it is much harder to detect, you know, malicious code that's just kind of sitting on a website because you're not going to look behind the scenes. You're not going to look at the source. Come on, be real. But, you know, obviously, if you go to like a 7-Eleven or something like that gas station, you're going to see, you know, if something doesn't look right, right? Like if it, if you've seen a skimmer before and it looks like it's uh, this credit card uh, scanner has a skimmer on it, probably not going to use it, right? There's people all the time that go to these different merchants and, um, you know, post about finding skimmers and things like that at gas stations and convenience stores and all kinds of stuff. According to a data breach notification shared with Montana Attorney General's office, C-Tickets discovered the breach in April 2021 when they started an investigation with the help of a forensics firm. However, it wasn't until January 8th of 2022 that malicious code was fully removed from its site. The internal investigation showed that the infection happened on June 25th of 2019. 2019. So the total duration of the exposure was just over two and a half years. Two and a half years, people. These types of incidents are exactly why we're starting to see a lot of these aggressive uh, data breach notification requirements or laws that are actually getting implemented, right? Two and a half years this company was infiltrated for and people were skimming credit cards from them. That, that's forever, right? You would think that you know, if some of these uh, fraudulent charges or things like that start to show up on people's accounts, on their credit cards, that, you know, maybe the credit card companies would start to notify the merchant that, you know, hey, maybe you're compromised, right? Like maybe, but, you know, two and a half years, I don't even understand how it was able to go that long, right? Like unless these, uh, unless these people stealing the credit cards literally were just taking the credit cards and putting them into like a database and not selling them off for use yet, right? Like how, I don't understand how you can go that long and not get notified by a credit card merchant or tr- you know start to identify some of this stuff, right? Because it's not common for a credit card uh, for credit cards to be stolen like that and just never used, right? Like I just don't I don't get that. But yeah, I mean the fact that this company couldn't even discover that issue after two and a half, until two and a half years later, basically, you know that's unacceptable. Um, yeah, even like, let's see. It says even they discovered the breach in April 2021, and then they it initially happened. They think and and I say they think right. 
in 2019, right? So just that period alone is roughly about two years, right? Like it's just under two years of first initially discovering that there's a breach. And then you see these data breach notification laws and regulations that are going into place that once you check this out, they want you to notify people within like four days or, you know, a few days or whatever it is, right? Like within a week, basically a lot of these are saying, but this company, <laughs> two and a half year, two, well, two years since they notified it or noticed it. And then, you know, basically two and a half years until they were supposedly able to take out you know, all the code, the regulators, listen to me. This is why saying under a week of notifying people when there's a breach probably isn't going to happen, right? Like that's probably, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to detect a breach, right? And it's even harder to detect, you know, the extent of the breach. So yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Next article, CISO struggle, struggle to articulate business impacts of cyber risks. A new survey from FTI Consulting reveals the heightened pressure felt by chief security information officers, CISOs, as companies board, uh, company boards and leadership seek to improve oversight of cyber risks in the face of growing regulatory investor and media scrutiny. With CISOs required to regularly present to their boards, they now face the challenge of articulating cybersecurity risk and opportunities to an engaged audience. So actually saying, you know, what the risks are and articulating that, describing it. Among CISO surveyed, 85% said that the prominence of cybersecurity on the board's agenda has increased over the last 12 months with 75% feeling heightened uh, scrutiny from senior leadership. The lack of executive leadership understanding CISO's roles, 55% prevents CISOs from articulating critical priorities with 53% saying that cybersecurity priorities are not completely aligned with their organization's C-suite leadership. Despite the increased prominence, most CISOs, 58%, surveyed revealed that their, their, uh, their struggle to articulate technical information and effectively communicate cyber risk in a manner that the board and senior leadership can understand. Ultimately, a disconnect between the CISO and board and leadership priorities may negatively impact an organization's ability to effectively prepare and respond to a cyber incident. Okay, so let's take that in, right? If you've been watching my channel, I recently revealed uh, or published rather a video uh, talking about ROI in cybersecurity and not focusing on ROI because if you watch that video, well, I'll give you a spoiler. It's a terrible metric for cybersecurity, not a relevant metric, uh, but showing the value right? Really focusing on the value instead of the ROI, right? And this article just re-emphasizes that. It is very hard to show ROI in cybersecurity. Go watch that video if you haven't, if you haven't watched it. I'm not going to reveal the, the content of that video because that video is a really good insight into what you should be focusing on, but it's really hard to show the ROI, right? And uh, for a lot of reasons, and again, go watch that that video, but you can see senior leadership in security is struggling to relate to the business, right? Like that's a serious issue. One of the keys to getting support and getting, you know, backing and financial, uh, financial budgets and things like that towards your security efforts 
is being able to relate and communicate that information, that risk, those risks to the board, to the lead, uh, to the business leadership, to those other members that are at the, at the table, right? Like being able to do that directly impacts how much money you're going to get towards your efforts. And if you can't effectively do that, you know, that certainly could be a, uh, a, an, uh, a leadership, an officer, a CISO issue, right? Like just an inability to be able to do that. I mean, that, that is possible, right? Um, that just from like a general standpoint, right? Like just not having that skill set to be able to do that, not understanding the business side of things, right? Like how, how businesses operate and all that kind of stuff. You know, that could be being an overly technical person. That's totally possible. Um, you know, if you're looking at careers, right? Like in cybersecurity, the CISO is not typically an extremely technical person, right? Like that's not going to be your subject matter expert when it comes to technology information. Um, they're going to know, you know, concepts and, you know, they're going to know stuff about security, but they're not going to be that deep, deep chief security uh, subject matter expert on the technical aspects, the deep te- uh, technical aspects, right? But they're going to know how to implement programs, get things done, um, make sure that the improvements happen, like all this kind of stuff, right? Like the important stuff from that strategic level. But, you know, that's a serious issue. And if you're trying to become a CISO, right? Like, or you are a CISO, this is where you should spend a lot of time trying to relate to the business leaders, right? In terms that they can understand, in terms that make sense, in terms that are correctly used, right? Um, again, go watch that video on ROI. It's, it just pains me every time that somebody puts an article or some kind of content out there talking about ROI and cybersecurity. It pains me. <laughs> it's just, ah, but go watch that video. It's good. So um, we have to get better leaders. And again, if you're in a CISO role or if you want to be in a CISO role, you really, really need to focus on a lot of this stuff. This stuff is really important. It's going to impact how well and how effectively you can do your job. So yeah. Uh, K-8 students learn cybersecurity through gamification. Students in kindergarten through eighth grade can learn cybersecurity best practices and safety techniques through gamification in the classroom. Schools across North America have struggled with ensuring that cyber safety for their students. Uh, There is no standardized cyber cyber safety curriculum being taught in primary, elementary, or intermediate schools. As critical as it is, children learn about cyber safety early on. Teachers often lack the resources to help their students. They aren't cybersecurity specialists, and the vast majority of them have never received any cybersecurity training themselves. Totally get it, right? Uh, they're teachers and educators, and you know they're really focused on educating, right? Uh, a no-cost gam- uh, gamified cyber cyber education platform called Cyber Legends intends to help bolster students' cyber readiness in schools across North America with engaging curriculum-aligned lessons masked as a fun video game. The game teaches kids about passwords, identity thefts, uh, scams, phishing cyberbullying, sexting, social media issues, and much more. A student's play Cyber Legends reports appear in the teacher's dashboard. This information shows teachers where students are excelling 
and where there's room for improvement. The reports are easily tailored to a teacher's specific focus and helps guide the assessment process. So if you haven't been following the cybersecurity training world, right? Like there are several of these kind of gaming, uh, gamification, uh, gamification training platforms, right? That are starting to spring up and they vary, you know, how they deliver the content. Some are uh, really focused on like, if you were kind of more of a professional, because there'd be more things that you would need to know as far as how to implement that summer, way more in the gaming atmosphere, right? Um, yeah, so, uh, so with this, you know, I think for young students, the, the ones that really mimic games, you know, are very, very useful, right? It's going to be very hard to get somebody's attention that's in like fifth grade or, you know, even younger than that, especially too, right? To get their attention by showing them like Metasploit. It's going to be very hard, right? It's going to be hard to show them uh, a command line of a Cisco router and get them excited about it. It's going to be super hard. You're, it's going to be hard to get your point across even by doing that, right? So you really have to make it uh, appeal to the correct audience. I'm not as much of a fan of the ones that are more geared towards professionals that are really into the game atmosphere, right? Like if you're really trying to build it into like um, kind of like a, I don't know, like a Call of Duty-esque cybersecurity platform where you're trying to teach people and it's meant for actual professionals, I think that's a really bad idea because I don't think you're giving enough skills to that person that are actionable, right? You're teaching them in a, you know, in a theoretical kind of atmosphere, a conceptual atmosphere and you're taking it to the next level, right? People already complain about kind of conceptual certifications and conceptual training and things like that as it is. And you're just taking it and putting it kind of on steroids. But with that being said, you know, teaching it to young students, I think that's a great way to really get them uh, engaged and interested and in a way that they can understand it, right? Things that are directly applicable to them. I think the more that you can apply it to their personal lives, and things that they are going through, you know, is really important. As somebody who didn't grow up always with computers, because believe it or not, computers weren't always around. If you're, you know, if you're pretty young right now, computers and the internet weren't always a thing. Just saying. But, you know, so I was around, you know, with computers as these things kind of evolved, right? And a lot of these platforms grew. And you know, students or kids now, they're always around computers. They, they don't know a world without computers. And this also kind of goes back to, you know, another article that we talked about last week where millennials and Gen Z are maybe a more, little bit more relaxed on uh, security stuff, especially with like their employer's devices and stuff, you know, because I made a point, you know, that those generations, they have been around computers for you know their entire life in a lot of cases, and they tend to think that they know you know how to secure things. You know, frankly, there hasn't been a lot of training. You know, just look at this, right? There hasn't been a lot of training as you've been coming up. 
And, you know, there's probably been more focus on how to use computers, how to do things, you know, how to create, right? Not necessarily how to keep things secure. But I like this idea. I like really going after the, uh, the younger students and really trying to get them excited. And I think, you know, when you look at a professional's kind of career timeline, right? So let's say like kindergarten and then into like high school, like later years of high school, right? Like those, those points in their life, they're going to be drastically different. What appeals to them, what is interesting to them, what, uh, what will get them to learn correctly. Right. And I think that definitely kind of, as you get to that, that end point, that end of high school, and obviously, especially into like college or into their working life, you know, they're going to be much more focused on kind of professional skills, right? Versus like if you're in kindergarten, you know, you want that to be a big story. Like you want it to be very story-based and really kind of focusing on that kind of aspect of things. So just these platforms, I, I urge you to focus on that evolution. Don't, you know, don't take somebody that's a professional and really, really hammer on some crazy story that doesn't give them actionable skills that they can understand and actually use because that doesn't help. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> uh, SigStore launches free software signing and verification service for open source projects. SigStore, an open source supported uh, project supported by the likes of Google, GitHub, ChainGuard, and Red Hat has become somewhat of a standard for signing, verifying, and protecting software projects and the dependencies that they use to make sure that the software that you install and run on your machine hasn't been manipulated. These days, after all, there aren't many software projects that don't rely on at least one and usually multiple open source libraries, which themselves probably rely on other libraries too. And with many of these projects maintained by volunteers, they make, it easy, they make an easy target for hackers. SigStore is already one of the fastest adopted open source projects ever with more than 4 million signatures logged so far. Both the Kubernetes and Python communities use it to sign and release and uh, sign the releases and NPM, the popular JavaScript project manager, is currently in the process of integrating SigStore to ensure the provenance of its packages. So if you're not familiar with how software works, you can sign software and that basically it's like a digital certificate, right? Like as a company, I've signed software saying that this is legitimate. I've signed it with my certificate. So it's all legit, right? You know, open source uh, software especially is, is pretty much a challenge, right? Like in every kind of facet, right? It's, it's a challenge. Um, and, you know, one of the things, especially if anybody can contribute to software, you know, potentially they can include some malicious libraries or code or something, right? That's an issue. It, a lot of times with open source software, you know, sometimes people get it from multiple sources, right? Like sometimes they get it from uh, GitHub or, you know, somebody else's website or something, right? Because open source. Um, obviously, that's an issue. But I think the idea of implementing signing is an interesting one in open source software because it, it really, you know, starts to show like, yes, like as, like Python, right? Like you've got this from the official source of Python. It is signed. Like this is legitimately what we are putting out, right? We've vetted this. Awesome. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, you know, there's a lot of value in just signing software in general. 
So this is pretty exciting to see. Uh, this kind of does bring up supply chain security. So where are you getting your code? Where are your vendors getting your code? Getting their code, and what is implemented in that? And then when things go wrong, you know what is in the code, right? Like what have I implemented so I know where there's vulnerabilities, where I need to look as far as the vendors uh, to see if they've announced anything. And so it, it just goes back to the whole supply chain security, right? So making sure that you're getting your software from trusted sources and you're not getting it from some like pirated, uh, pirated website, right? You know, that's pretty important. Pretty important. Uh, let's see here. All right. So a 22-year-old vulnerability reported in widely used uh, and widely used uh, SQLite, SQLite database library. High severity vulnerability has been disclosed in the SQLite database library, which was introduced as part of a code change dating all the way back to October 2000 and could enable attackers to crash or control programs. Track to CVE 2022-35737 with a CVS score, CVSS score of 7.5. 22 year old vulnerability affects SQLite versions 1.0.12 uh, through 3.39.1 and has been addressed with version 3.39.2 released in July 21, 2022. Arbitrary code execution is confirmed when the library is compiled without stat canaries, but unconfirmed when stat canaries are present and denial of service is confirmed in all cases. So basically this can lead to a denial of service and uh, prevent users from using whatever you're using it in. Uh, Programmed in C, SQLite is the most commonly, uh, most widely used database engine, including in, by default in Android, iOS, Windows, and Mac OS, as well as popular web browsers such as Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and Apple Safari. Vulnerability discovered by Trail of Bits concern, uh, concerns an integer overflow bug that occurs when extremely large string inputs are passed as parameters to the SQLite implementation of the printf functions, which in turn make use of other functions to handle the string formatting. So, you know, obviously it's a bug. If you have this, you need to update straight up, right? But, you know, this is one of the scary things that happens in supply chain and in software that you've used for a long time. This issue is 22 years old, right? 22 years old. It's a bit longer than that, uh, that company took to actually identify that they'd been uh, they had a scammer on their, uh, skimmer on their website, you know, but <laughs> so I had to, I had no choice, but you know, 22 years, uh, 22 year old vulnerability in your code. I mean, that's a long time, right? It, it, it feels like you could have identified it a little bit earlier, <laughs> you know, maybe it was like something deep down in the depths of your code. But, you know, that's an issue, right? Because think about this, right? So not even talking about this specific software or database library, but think about if you had another piece of software, right? You had something else where you used it for 22 years or even 10 years, right? And that just, that code, it's pushed deeper and deeper into your code base. You know, what happens if it's not a fixable issue? right? Like how reliant are you 
on that software, on that library, on that code base, right? Like how reliable are, how reliant are you on that? Is that going to be something that you can easily fix or swap out of your code base? Maybe. Is that going to be something that you, you know, you just got to live with and you've just got to accept that you have that vulnerability in your code, you know, in your systems, in your networks, you know, that's, that's, that, that could hurt. Right. And that's why you have to really focus on your supply chain and the things that you're using or the things that you're getting from other vendors, right? You can't just blanketly accept everything and you know this okay this software has this excellent feature that I really want to use and so I'm going to embed this into my my actual source code of all my software you know there's a lot of issues that can come through this and you know you have to be aware of that you have to think about that as a developer as a security professional you know at your company what are you bringing in where are you sourcing products or services from and software from? And how is that implemented into your architecture? Right? That, that's a serious issue. A lot of companies, they don't develop everything internally. We know that, right? But you have to be aware of what you do implement and what you bring in and how that impacts the rest of the, you know, the architecture. Um, you know, it's a serious issue. Don't, don't take that lightly because obviously this does just have an update, right? But, you know, this was updated in 2022. It was around since 20, uh, 2000, right? 22 years, right? So that's a long time for things to be getting exploited potentially. You know, I, I mean, it's, yeah, that, that can be scary, right? Especially if it's a serious thing that, uh, you know, just a serious bug, serious vulnerability. And in this case, it can cause denial of service. So that's a serious issue. Let's see here. Uh, Microsoft fixes Windows vulnerable driver uh, block list sync issue. Microsoft says it addressed an issue preventing the Windows kernel vulnerable driver block list from being synced to systems running older versions of Windows. This block list stored in the driver sipolicy.p7b file is designed to block threat actors from dropping legitimate but vulnerable drivers on target systems and bring your own vulnerable driver, BYOVD, attacks on HVCI-enabled Windows machines or those running Windows in S mode. The flawed drivers are then exploited to escalate privileges in the Windows kernel and execute malicious code, disabling security solutions and taking control of the device. So anytime there's an there's an issue with drivers, which, you know, there's vulnerable drivers and then doing things like refactoring or, you know, rewriting drivers, you know, obviously those are kind of different extremes or different issues, right? If you're going to actually, you know, go in and rewrite drivers and things like that and make them, you know, have some serious security uh, backdoors and things like that, you know, that's an extreme skill set. And that's going to be a um, a highly advanced skill set that you know typically we're not going to see a lot of that, right? Like, you know, it's just how it is, right? We might see that, but this is talking about you know uh, leg legitimate vulnerable drivers, so kind of like you know almost reverting on patches or something like that. But 
you know, that that's an issue. Um, just from the grand scheme of things, you know, when you're talking about vulnerabilities and where they fall kind of in the, the system architecture, the closer that you get to hardware vulnerabilities, the more the issue is, right? So drivers, um, if you can get into the BIOS and impact that, you know, TPM chips, like all that kind of stuff, the closer you get to hardware, the more of an issue it is, right? Like the more, if let's just say, you know, you had a vulnerability that could affect all the components of a system, right? The software, the hardware, all this stuff, right? Well, it might be, you know, a, a medium vulnerability or something like that at the software level. As you get closer to the hardware, it becomes more and more critical because the hardware, you know, controls a lot of this stuff. And the closer you are to the hardware, the more you can avoid some of the security measures that are in place in like the operating system. And that's kind of why you know, there's an issue because it can start to execute things before that software stuff even kicks off because there's a whole boot process of how things boot up. You know, the, the hardware boots up and then it starts the operating system and it kind of evolves this process. So, you know, that that's just something to consider. I mean, you know, this is obviously going to be kind of a Windows thing, right? Like a Microsoft thing that they have to fix, um, the, you know, that they did fix. But it's something to be aware of, right? Because that that becomes an issue, right? Anytime there's risk, anytime there's vulnerabilities, we have to take that in consideration. We have to look at if there's fixes, there's ways around it. There's other things that we can do to make sure that we're not vulnerable. And, uh, you know, that's just something that I wanted to, wanted to bring up because we don't always talk about, you know, how that chain of events, you know, where those vulnerabilities affect, where that plays into the, into the equation, right? And again, the closer you get to the hardware and affecting the hardware uh, with vulnerabilities, the more serious, the more critical it becomes. So uh, just keep that in mind. But with that being said, that's going to be the last article for this week. Again, this is your Threat Intel Briefing for October 23rd, 2022 through October 29th, 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, because we are available on YouTube, it's on my channel, John Good. Uh, John Good on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you think of anything that you want to see as far as content-wise, if you think of anything that you'd like to see in the show, in the videos, to make everything better, because again, I do it for you, uh, and to give back to the community, let me know. And I will definitely take a look at those. I respond to all the comments. And uh, when you subscribe and you hit the notification bell icon, that way you get notified when there's future content, new live streams, all that kind of stuff. If you're listening on podcasting platform, because we are available on all the popular podcasting platforms, the iTunes, the Spotify, whatever else there is, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review as well. Same thing goes. And uh, check out the description for a link to the show notes where you can see the articles. If you just want to go to my website, johngood.com, they will be on there. And you can look at the articles that we talked about, look a little bit deeper. You can look at other articles that are included that we did not talk about and see all that good information. Plus there's other great resources on my website too. So definitely want to check that out. You want to check that out. And uh, with that being said, that's going to be it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me and I will see you next time. See you later.